This is God's word. Then Joshua rose in the morning and set out from Shittim, and they came to Jordan, he and all the people of Israel, and lodged there before they passed over. At the end of three days, the officers went through the camp and commanded the people, as soon as you see the ark of the covenant of the Lord your God being carried by the Levitical priests, then you shall set out from your place and follow it. Yet there shall be a distance between you and it, about 2,000 cubits in length. Do not come near it in order that you may know the way you shall go, for you have not passed this way before. Then Joshua said to the people, consecrate yourselves, for tomorrow the Lord will do wonders among you. And Joshua said to the priests, take up the Ark of the Covenant and pass on before the people. So they took up the Ark of the Covenant and went before the people. The Lord said to Joshua, today I will begin to exalt you in the sight of all Israel, so that you may know that as I was with Moses, so I will be with you. And as for you, command the priests who bear the Ark of the Covenant, when you come to the brink of the waters of the Jordan, you shall stand in the Jordan. And Joshua said to the people of Israel, come here and listen to the words of the Lord your God. And Joshua said, here is how you shall know that the living God is among you and that he will without fail drive out from before you the Canaanites, the Hittites, the Hivites, the Perizzites, the Girgashites, the Amorites and the Jebusites. Behold, the ark of the covenant of the Lord of all the earth is passing over before you into the Jordan. Now, therefore, take 12 men from the tribes of Israel, one uh, from each tribe a man. And when the soles of the feet of the priests bearing the ark of the Lord, the Lord of all the earth shall rest in the waters of the Jordan. The waters of the Jordan shall be cut off from flowing and the waters coming down from above shall stand up in one heap. So when the people set out from their tents to pass over the Jordan with priests bearing the ark of the covenant before the people, and as soon as those bearing the ark had come as far as the Jordan and the feet of the priests bearing the ark were dipped in the brinks of the Jordan, now the Jordan overflows its banks throughout the time of harvest. The waters coming down from above stood up and rose up in a heap very far away at Adam, the city that is beside Zarathan, and those flowing down towards the Sea of the Arabah, the, the, the Salt Sea, were completely cut off, and the people passed over opposite Jericho. Now the priests bearing the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord stood firmly on dry ground in the midst of the Jordan, and all Israel was passing over on dry ground until all the nation finished passing over the Jordan. And we go down to verse 4 in chapter 4. Then Joshua called the 12 men from the people of Israel whom he had appointed, a man from every, each tribe. And Joshua said to them, Pass on before the ark of the Lord your God into the midst of the Jordan. Take up each of you a stone upon his shoulder, according to the number of the tribes of the people of Israel, that this may be a sign among you. When your children ask in time to come, what do these stones mean to you? Then you shall tell them that the waters of the Jordan were cut off before the ark of the covenant of the Lord. When it passed over the Jordan, the waters of the Jordan were cut off. So these stones shall be to the people of Israel a memorial forever. We'll leave the reading of God's word there. You can carry on and read chapter 4, the rest of chapter 4 if you want. Um, we're going to think about this passage now together. We're going to ask a couple of questions of it. <clears throat> um, but first of all, what I want to say to you, number one, is that God achieves astonishing new life for his people. That's the, that's the big idea, that's the takeaway message, if you like. God uh, achieves astonishing new life for his people. And then as a result of that, we'll look at three other things. As a result of that, number one, so we prepare. Number two, so we lead. And number three, so we remember. So God achieves astonishing new life for his people. 
Let's have a look at where that comes from in the Bible text to hope, hopefully understand what we're talking about. I don't know if it occurred to you, hopefully it did, as you read through with me, uh, chapter 3 there, this just seems, uh, an, an experience that's being told just seems so unlike anything that we'll ever experience, uh, so unlike anything and that will happen to you and I in our lifetime. But uh, as we go through, hopefully um, we'll be able to show how relevant this passage actually is for us just now. So anyway, uh, the first thing I want to say is that the Ark, the Ark of the Lord is, is a central thing comes up time and again in fact 17 times during chapter 3 and 4 is mention of the ark of the lord what is the ark of the lord you, you say well the ark of the lord uh, for those of you who aren't familiar with with much of the old testament is, is this the ark of the lord uh, the ark of the covenant if you like was it was an ornate box um, that was made by uh, moses in accordance to what god told him uh, it, was, it was uniquely carved with beautiful inscriptions and carvings on it on the top of this amazing box that was overlaid with gold with these, these cherubim, these sort of uh, mighty heavenly um, creatures, if you like, depicted um, on top of the box. And between the wings of these two cherubim, made out of gold, um, was the place where the presence of God dwelt. So the ark, in the minds of all the all of Israel, all the Jews, is this place where God met his people, the, the place where God was specifically dwelling. And so they put the ark in the center of the tent, the tabernacle, it was in the most holy place, and the tabernacle and, and all that was actually in the center of the entire community. The entire community, thousands of people, um, were arranged around the tent, and in the center of the tent was the ark. So it's a very significant thing, all right? And as we see in uh, this passage here, the Ark of the Covenant um, is carried by the priests. And you see down in verse 4, the Ark is picked up by the priests and goes ahead of the people. And you see in verse 4, the reason why it goes ahead of the people is so that you may know the way you shall go, for you have not passed this way before. I love that. I think that's quite funny because the, the people uh, have never passed through the Jordan River before. And yet uh, God wants to lead them before uh, the Jordan River, through the Jordan River, so that they may know the way to go. Of course they don't know where the way to go. They've never done it before. But anyway, the River Jordan uh, in this passage um, is the place that, that prevents their, the, the people from getting into the Promised Land. Uh, the promised land, we, we saw this the last time we, we looked at Joshua. Uh, the promised land is the place of God's blessing. It's the place that was promised to Israel from Abraham and Isaac and all the, the great patriarchs. It's the place that was promised to Moses and all the Israelites. And, and the thing that lay between the Israelites right now and the promised land was this mighty river Jordan, this, this, this river right in front of them. Uh, it's a dangerous thing for them to cross over it. We saw in verse 15, as you read through, uh, it was sort of in brackets, it says the, the Jordan overflows its banks through the time of harvest. So actually at the time when we come to this story right here, it's at the time when it's most dangerous to try and get across the River Jordan. Apparently, uh, including floodwaters, it was up to one mile wide at certain places. Uh, so to get across something so wide and so dangerous would be incredibly difficult if not stupid anyway they were faced with life or death the people of israel israel uh, queued up as they were on one side looking over the river at the promised land on the other side 
Life, if they were successful in getting across, entering the promises of God, entering his blessing. And death, if not, if this all went wrong, they would probably get consumed in the river itself. And so we see in verse 13, the ark goes ahead of them. God himself shall bring you over. And in verse 16, as, as, as the ark is brought into sort of the, uh, the, the river itself, it says the waters heap up, away back, and the entire people of Israel, which probably numbers by this time hundreds of thousands of people, plus their possession, possessions, plus their animals and their flocks and their herds, all passed over, it says, on dry ground. We can see from this passage that God achieves astounding new life for his people. God achieves astounding new life for his people. But the astonishing thing is down in verse 10. Here is how you shall know that the living God among you is among you and that he will without fail drive out from before you these other nations. You see, the sign of getting across the Jordan was just a pointer of greater things to come still, a greater victory that the people were to enjoy. They were going to overcome these hostile forces as they entered into the promised land. They're going to push them back so they could come and take <clears throat> refuge. See, the River Jordan became, as, as, as time goes on and, and as the sort of the church comes along and people start thinking about it, the River Jordan became a symbol of life and death in later Christian thinking. It became a paradigm. The River Jordan represented for many people uh, in the Christian church life and death. It represented oppression and, and, and the promise of freedom in the future. It represented a threat from death. The River Jordan represented a fear of hell. The River Jordan represented anxiety and fear. Sometimes you hear reference to a Jordan <coughs> experience. But as we've seen, God achieves astonishing new life for his people. And the point for us all today is that it's the same God who did all this stuff here in Joshua 3 and 4 who continues today. There's an old hymn that was written in 1787 called On Jordan's Stormy Banks. And it was sung by African-American slaves as they were taken over to uh, North America, to the New World. And they took the Jordan to be their experience of suffering at the hands of their slave masters. But perhaps a, a hymn that really sums up this idea even more uh, clearly for us that may, many people may know is this hymn called Guide me, O great Redeemer, um, uh, written in 1747. It's quite often sung by the Welsh uh, male voice choir you know, at the start of the, the rugby. Guide me, O great Redeemer. And there's one verse I want to read from it, from this hymn. Uh, it says this. <clears throat> when I tread the verge of Jordan, bid my anxious fears subside. Death of death and hell's destruction, land me safe on Canaan's side. Songs of praises, songs of praises I will ever give to thee. I will ever give to thee. You see, the River Jordan, whether it's here in this text or in later Christian thinking, reflects the trials that we go through. It symbolizes the hope that God will achieve astonishing new life for his people. And how do we receive this new life that he talks about? How do we receive this peace and confidence and hope that this old hymn is talking about? 
Well, it's through the gospel. Because in the gospel, you see, God went ahead of his people. He went through the Jordan so that we could pass to the promised land. In the gospel, we hear God saying to us, I'm going to go ahead of you. I'm going to stand in the waters. I'm going to stem the raging torrents so that you can pass safely by. In the gospel, God says to us, do not fear. I've been across already. I'll take you safely through. In the gospel, we see that Jesus had a Jordan experience like nothing we will ever experience. Jesus, in the gospel, was cut off from life so that we could walk safely to God. At the cross of Christ, we see the greatest enemies being overcome. We see an end to sin, death, and the devil. Anything that can come against humankind and drag them down has been taken away because of what Jesus has done. And Jesus rose on the third day. So it's not just hope that one day God will land me safe on Canaan's side. It is a reality. Because of what Jesus has done and what he did happens to us. Songs of praises I will ever give to thee we can sing. No power of hell, no scheme of man. We were singing that a few moments ago. So the big takeaway message in this entire passage and in the sermon is number one. God achieves astonishing new life for his people. But that then carries for us three implications. <coughs> three implications, because God achieves astonishing new life for us. Number one, so, therefore, we prepare. We prepare. Look down at verses two and three. It says there that um, the officers, you know, the leaders, went through the camp commanding the people, get ready, look at the ark of God, Remember the presence of God, specially symbolized in that, that box, the ornate box? Keep your eye on that, because when it starts moving, when, when the Levite, Levitical priests take it, you've got to follow it. Prepare yourself. Keep an eye out for it. And then in verse 5, it says, Consecrate yourselves, for tomorrow the Lord will do wonders among you. Consecrate yourselves is another way of saying, prepare yourself spiritually sanctify or devote yourself to expecting God to do something big. Prepare yourself for what's about to happen. It doesn't give us any details in the text about what that consecration looks like. We can see other, other places in the Old Testament where people consecrated themselves by sometimes washing their clothes, sometimes wearing different clothes, sometimes fasting from food, sometimes abstaining from other activities, all so that they could focus and prepare for what God is about to do to prepare their hearts in anticipation. Why should they do that? Why should we think about doing that? Well, it says in verse 5, the reason you consecrate yourselves, said, the, said Joshua and the, and the leaders, is that tomorrow the Lord will do wonders among you. The point is this, God is moving. He's about to do something incredible. He's about to do something remarkable. And so you should consecrate yourselves, Joshua says to Israel, an outward act an outward behavior, an outward practice, if you like, which leads to or reflects an inner openness to God and his acts. I'll repeat that again. Consecration is an outward act or behavior that leads to or reflects an inner openness to God and his acts. It's the response to God's declaration that I'm going to do something astonishing in your presence. Get ready. That's what consecration here is all about. 
Just to be clear, consecrating yourself is not the thing that gets God moving. It's not the thing that tips his hand so that he has to act. It's not that when God sees you consecrating yourself, he thinks, aha, I better, I better turn up and do something. But the reason why Israel had to consecrate themselves is that it is possible for us to miss the significance of what God is, is doing right in front of our face. And in the New Testament, God promises to, to continue to move. He promises to grant astonishing new life, to show himself again among us as we gather for worship. When we come together, as we, we've done this evening, God effectively says to us, I'm going to go ahead of you. I'm going to declare again what I've done. I'm going to demonstrate myself in front of you, before your eyes. So the question that we should think of ourselves together here at Foundation is, are we ready when we come to, to worship God? When we gather together, are we, are we prepared? Are we expectant that God will do something great among us? I'm willing to bet that this affects most of us, if not all of us, at least one time in our lives as we come to church. And I know this is a risk for us here at Foundation Church, especially as we turn up at sort of, you know, just gone four o'clock or 4.30 and, 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 and the room is bare. Uh, sometimes there's people in it and we have to suddenly uh, <clears throat> almost transform this place into something that, that's sort of suitable for public worship. And so it's all hands to the pump, getting the coffee on, getting the seats out getting the lights on, do the music, all that stuff. So I know this is a risk for us at Foundation Church. We can, we can, we can rush straight into our time of worship and, uh, and, and not consecrate, not prepare ourselves. Uh, you know, there's a big rush to get organized. And so it's not easy for us to stop and to prepare ourselves. Perhaps if you uh, are a member of a young family as well, if you have a young family, it's, it's difficult too. It's difficult to get the kids packaged up, isn't it? To get them ready, to get them organized. Everybody in the car, everybody got their shoes on, everybody got everything they need. For, more, for, for others of us, uh, church just becomes another, another event, another thing we do in our day, another, another slot in our busy weekend. Something we just have to squeeze in. Sometimes we think church is the thing we have to do rather than the thing that God is doing. And so for, for us at various times in our lives, worship, gathering together, becomes deprioritized. It's the sort of thing that we think, uh, I'll get to if I can, but if there's other things happening, then church gets kicked out. But we see in the scriptures that God is specially present. When we gather together, there is something special that happens that doesn't happen when we're all scattered. God, we see promises, he, he sort of binds himself to his word through the reading and preaching of, of the scriptures. He binds himself to the sacrament, to the bread and the wine and, and baptism. And he says to his church, I, I'm going to be there in my word. I'm going to be there in the sacrament. I'm going to minister to you. There am I in your midst. It's, folks, it's not that God cannot move among us if we are unprepared for worship, but it's that more that you may not be prepared yourselves you may miss the full impact of what God is doing what he is saying as we gather for worship let me uh, tentatively give a couple of tips that may help uh, you prepare for Sunday worship these are tips coming from me as one who myself 
struggles with exactly this thing, with this, the, the rush and the unpreparedness of, of worship. So let's maybe learn some of these things together and try and think about how we can put them into practice. This might help you. Tip number one is shape your weekend around Sunday worship. Sunday worship is not the only thing that you're going to do all weekend. Of course, there's lots of things to be done over the weekend. But I put it to you that Sunday worship is the most important thing that you will do all weekend, if not your entire week. Think about it the other way. If you plan your weekend around something else, some other good thing, some other fun exercise or activity, then church attendance or preparedness for church drops down the list of important things to do. So number one, shape your weekend around Sunday worship. Number two tip that I'll put before you tentatively is this. Where possible, be on time for worship. That way you come to church unhurried, not smashing in as I have so often done in the past, but just ready for the call, ready for God to speak, expectant. Number three, the third and final tip I want to tentatively offer is consecrate yourself before you come. Consecrate yourself, prepare yourself before you come. Pray before you come to church at some point. Maybe even the day before on the, Sunday, the Saturday night. Read the scripture passage that we're going to be looking at before you come to church. Read it as a family if you have that option. Sing the songs that we're going to sing before you come to church so that you're aware of what they are and looking forward to singing them together. A few little things like that. Prepare before you come. God achieves astonishing new life among his people. Number one, so we prepare. God achieves astonishing new life for his people. Number two, so we lead. We lead. What we have seen in this Jordan experience, this this cutting off of the waters miraculously, this crossing over is all primarily God's work. It's God who's done this. It's him who's gone ahead. But as you've probably worked out through the passage, he uses people to achieve his purposes. God could have acted alone. He could have um, just spoken the word and suddenly the waters stopped and everybody crossed. But he chose to use leaders, Joshua and the, and the priests, to show uh, his, his power, to use them to achieve his purposes. Look down at verse 8 <clears throat> with me. It says, as for you, command the priests who bear the Ark of the Covenant, when you come to the brink of the waters of the Jordan, you shall stand still in the Jordan. (coughs) God is saying to the spiritual leaders, the priests, you've got to get your feet wet. You've got to go in first. You've got to go in and face the raging waters of the Jordan. You've got to start moving in before anything has happened. You can see, can't you, maybe imagine even if you were one of those priests stood in front of this flooded torrent of the River Jordan with this ark on your back. You know, they, they had these poles they would have uh, taken three, you know, three, three each side and uh, carried this, this thing across. But the Jordan just looked like the Jordan did the day before. 
And yet God spoke to them and said, get your feet wet. The eyes of all Israel were on them. And so God required these spiritual leaders to believe his promises and to walk forward. And so as we see the leaders obeyed, they got their feet wet. It says in verse 13, uh, when the soles of the feet of the priest bearing the ark of the Lord, the Lord of all the earth shall rest in the waters of the Jordan. Uh, the waters of the Jordan shall be cut off from flowing and the waters coming down from above shall stand up in a heap. It's not the actions of the priests that caused this miracle. I hope you can see that by now. But it shows that the spiritual leaders of Israel took the lead. They showed faith where it was required of them. They stepped boldly ahead where it was required of them. God chose to work through the leaders to achieve his purposes. And you probably don't, you don't have this in your printed handout, uh, but in verse 18 of chapter 4, it, says, it tells us that when all of Israel, that is the hundreds of thousands of people, and all their animals and all their positions, when they crossed over safely, the priests were lifted up onto dry land in the promised land itself, and it says there that the waters returned and they overflowed their banks as before. So what can we say about the leaders in this text? We can say this, God's leaders are the first in, they are the last out, and they lead by example. These are the kind of people that God used to cross the River Jordan. First in, last out, led by example. That's what leadership is, if you had to nail it down. These guys were the first in. They had the bottle and tenacity to walk out front. They were bold and brave to go where no one else is going. But not all leadership is this kind of pioneering, you know, pushing ahead type leadership because leaders also serve. Not only were they the first in, but they were the last to come out. They stayed till the end. They made sure that everyone was served. Everyone was through. They will not budge until the job was done, until everyone was safe. First in, last out, and they led by example. They did what they expected everyone else to do. They got their feet wet first. They said, go ahead. Quite often we had family holidays um, in places like Devon and Cornwall. There's always a beach attached and, and um, you know, we would, we would gather with other uncles and aunts and other family members and, um, you know, quite often if you're swimming in the English Channel, any time of the year it's absolutely freezing. And, um, but when there's a cousin or someone who's already in the sea, you know, and they're sort of shouting back to me on the, on the beach, you know, come on in, it's not as bad as you think. It's not as cold once you're in. When you hear those kind of messages from someone who's already straight in there, you're more likely to have a go, aren't you? You're more likely to follow them out and go for a swim and enjoy that. And that's kind of what we're seeing here. Leadership. Calling back and saying, you know what? It's not that bad. We, we've done it already. Leaders do what they expect everyone else to do. This, folks, by the way, is what, the reason why I'm belaboring the point is that this is my vision for leadership here at Foundation Church. We want leaders here at the church who are first in, last out, and who lead by example. And quite frankly, the higher our responsibility within leadership within the church, the greater these things should be demonstrated among us. Ultimately, uh, church leadership is just the group of people affirming what we can already see in someone's life. 
it's not that we're just sort of saying to someone you're going to be a leader because you've got the right degree or you seem to be this type of person. We're just affirming what someone is already doing in any realm. First in, last out, lead by example. But this extends beyond church leadership and formal roles and formal offices to all roles that we can take. For example, if you are a parent, then you're leading, you're leading your children. First in, last out, lead by example. <clears throat> Saying to your kids, not do as I say, sorry, uh, do as I say, not as I do, but leading them by example. If you're married, perhaps in the same way, the emphasis falls on you if you are a husband. First in, last out, lead by example. Are you going ahead? Are you giving yourself in service to your wife? Are you living as an example to her? And if you are in the working world, the same thing happens. Are you first in, last out, leading by example in everything you do, in your responsibilities in work? So we lead, because God achieves astonishing new life for his people. Thirdly and finally, so we remember. It was stated twice. If you read the entire chapter four, you'll see it. We've only included one on the, the service sheet. But it says in verses four and five, Joshua called these 12 men from the people of Israel, one whom he had appointed from every tribe. And Joshua said to them, pass on before the ark of the Lord. This is when the waters had stopped, by the way. Go ahead, take a stone, each of you on your shoulder, according to the number of tribes, that this may be a sign among you. The idea is that there was a representative from each of the 12 tribes of Israel. They would grab a stone, probably a big hunk of stone, you know, the bigger the better, really. Carry it out. And when you get to the other side, you're going to use these 12 stones to make a memorial. Everybody will look at those stones and remember where they've come from, from the dry bed of the River Jordan. And they'll look at that for years to come, generations to come. And that will provoke and remember to them what God has done. It will be a sign among you. Set them up, says God. Make them a memorial. Make, the, make them point to the great work that God did that day when you crossed over the River Jordan. That day that God achieved astonishing new life for his people. They are to be a physical reminder, a great achievement that God has done. You're to look at them. And it goes on to say, when your children ask, what is this lump of rocks over here? What are they? Then you get to tell them what happened. You get to repeat and recall to them that great story of how God did something astonishing. And he brought new life to his people by stopping the waters of the River Jordan. Every time you look at this heap of stones, you get to rehearse the story of God's goodness about what he's done. But you see, remembrance is not just a case of recalling the fact of what happened, the historic fact, but the remembrance is also to stir the people to worship. It's to allow it to fill their hearts with thanks for what God did, to de de declare through it um, that God dried up the waters of the Jordan. We all passed through, and you can't see this as in verse 23 and 24, so that all the peoples of the earth may know that the hand of the Lord is mighty and that you may fear or worship the Lord your God forever. That's the effect of these stones. Declaring the power and the might of God and stirring up worship for the people. Because God did something astonishing among them. And the point seems to be in verse 10 of chapter 3, dotting back there again. God did something amazing that day and he will continue to do amazing things among you as he helps you to conquer 
your enemies. Push back the darkness. See, it's not just a remembering of a physical fact that happened some time ago. It is a recalling that God keeps on providing astonishing new life for his people. And so fast forward to the church of the New Testament and we see in the scripture that Jesus gives gifts to the church so that we remember him. The sacraments of of baptism and of communion, the bread and the bath, as Martin Luther called them. Visual signs of God's faithfulness, powerful displays of God's achievement of new life in Christ Jesus through the gospel. And for those of you who aren't familiar with these things, baptism marks the start of a Christian life. Once someone has put faith in in Jesus, it happens once and once only. The Lord's Supper or communion that we're going to have later on tonight is a repeated thing. It's the ongoing celebration of what God has done. Sometimes we can think of the two like marriage. You get married once, uh, but you celebrate and enjoy marriage and your anniversary every year and celebrate again what's happened. That's the bread and the wine. So we remember. We recall, we're refreshed, and we respond to what God has done for us in Christ. And these are powerful rituals, powerful shapers of our community that marks off who belongs and then forms in our memory who we are, reminding ourselves again and again every week what God has done among us. But have a look down at verse 7 of chapter 4, uh, the last verse on your sheet. It says here, uh, Sorry, verse 6. When your children ask in time, what do these stones mean? Then you should tell them that the waters of the Jordan were cut off before the ark when it passed over the Jordan. There's a role here for the next generation. See, when it comes to these signs, when it comes to this memorial, there's engagement with the next generation as well. There's an expectation that our kids are going to be present. They're going to see what's happening. And they're going to be asking, we hope and pray, uh, and provoke questions as they see these memorials being used by the church. And so it's my uh, recommendation and, and encouragement to you, if, particularly if you're parents, if, as you take communion, and you know when we baptise people, but as you take communion, um, bring, bring your kids up with you so that they can see what's happening and, and see you eating the bread and see you drinking the wine. And that may provoke questions. You can use that as a a teaching tool yourself to to talk to your kids about what's happened and why the bread and why the wine and what does it mean. Because we're going to be doing it every week and it's a powerful, formative thing in their minds. The point is this. What God did at the Jordan River, what he did at the cross of Christ, is active. It's here today. The God is powerful among us. So we've seen uh, throughout this passage that God achieves astonishing new life for his people. So we prepare, so we lead, and so we remember. At the Jordan and at the cross, God says to us, do not fear, I've gone ahead of you. Do not worry, the promised land is open to you. And so let's come in faith to Jesus this evening as we come to the table and receive this astonishing new life. Amen.